Good to see you. Thanks for um, thanks for joining a pull request. Thanks for having me. Dude, I know it has been a tumultuous few weeks in the Web three and crypto world. It has. <laughs> um, in fact, I was I was reading your most recent post about it about the uh, the crash cycle, which seems like a very uh, a very topical uh, <laughs> a very topical theme for what's going on in the crypto markets right now. I mean, crypto markets, everything markets, inflation hit 9.1%. today. It seemed like I didn't, I didn't look at the market later in the day, but things somehow rallied back because people are just so, uh, I guess we're expecting expecting this. But yeah, it's, it's a, a crash in all of the things that I like to follow, which has been fun. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the world's going to hell, but but of course it really isn't. I mean, in, you know, I'm old enough to remember when interest rates were, I think, double digit in like my earliest consciousness, but that, that was a long time ago and we haven't been it's in that so- regime. Yeah. yeah, it's so funny. Every time I, I like, I, I, uh, it was my dad's 65th birthday a couple of weeks ago and we were hanging out and I was like, yeah, it's tough out there. Rates are rising. He's like, what are rates at? Like 4%? Like, <laughs> grow up. We've, we've been through this before. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, although, I mean, it is weird that you would, you would think you would see that coming out in the equities, but the equity markets are also crashing. So it, it just the world just seems very, and then obviously crypto is not even remotely a sort of hedge against the equity markets, right? They, they actually trade in a very correlated way, um, which is also alarming. What, what do you put your money into, Packy? What do I do? Tell me. Oh, Be man. my financial uh, advisor. Other, other, yeah, this, this is financial advice. Uh, other than, than not boring capital. I mean, I, I'm just, uh, you know, personally kind of sitting on the sideline uh, in the equities market, um, just kind of have my automatic buys of Ethan uh, and, and, you know, like kind of just some more uh, established and the, you know, the, the cryptos that I think are going to survive, uh, survive this winter. Um, and otherwise, you know, I, I'm spending most of my time focusing on kind of early stage investing where uh, valuations have already come down a little bit and it's going to be seven years before we, we know if we are right or uh, right or not right now anyway. But where I think that, uh, you know, in a lot of areas in crypto, certainly in early stage venture, there were just so many companies getting funded and built that it was really hard for the best ones to stand out uh, in all the noise. And so I think already I'm seeing uh, in investor updates that I'm getting, seeing uh, kind of some of the strongest companies in the portfolio start to snap up talent and, you know, they have, they have a, a big war chest. So, I mean, I think we'll probably just see a consolidation. Uh, and so I'm spending a lot of time in early stage on, on some of the the stronger companies in the portfolio. Yeah, no, apparently valuations have come down, although although deals are still happening. I can I can with a data set of one, I can definitely <laughs> I can definitely <laughs> affirm that. Are, yeah, the good deals are still are still happening, which I think is is great and probably the way that it that it should be. I and mean, I think one of the you know it's fun in a bull market when everything goes up, but one of the annoying parts is that if you have ten competitors funded, even if you're clearly the best, you have to compete for attention with all of them in terms of investors and investors might just get tired hearing about that same problem being solved over and over and over again. So, you know, there are going to be some very, very good Dow Tools companies, I'm sure. And investors, I think at some point, turned their brain off to Dow Tools companies because they heard so many versions of that pitch. And so I think now we'll see uh, if there's a few teams that survive, it'll be good for those teams. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, when, you know, obviously, as you know, there's a lot of sort of professional Web3 haters these days. And I think part of what blows I, your I mind 
Oh yeah, yeah. How would how would you how would you know? I know this is the first time anyone's mentioned these people to you. Um, yeah. It's it's funny though. They they really have turned it into into a professional thing. It's kind of funny. Um, I, I think I joke tweeted that hating crypto isn't actually a personality, but apparently some people think so. Um, in it's, any case, it's becoming a personality. Yeah, it's, it's, that yeah, one's yeah. that one's funny, and I know I've seen you getting kind of uh, getting into the mix recently, which has been been fun to watch. There's some like I, I think Zach is very smart, and and that was a fair and good conversation. The guy, Liran, who keeps tweeting video clips of everybody, like, that is a weird hobby uh, to, you know, I think he runs a business too. A weird hobby to spend a lot of your day on the internet finding video clips and, and clipping them and tweeting them. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's one of the fun parts of a bear market, I'm sure. No, no. And then he even, he does promoted tweets. So his tweets, he actually boosts them. It's like an ad. I don't know no if he way. has. No way. I didn't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I've blocked him a while ago. Yeah. Good. I, I couldn't. I couldn't because I, I think I. I muted the thread where he uh, where he dunked on me, but I was in the hospital with our son, who's who's fine, but had bronchiolitis uh, at the time. So, like when his tweet came out, I was literally sleeping on the floor of the like kind of you know just emergency room when we were waiting to get an actual room. And I saw it, and I was like, "Dude, I messed up." Like I DM'd him, I was like, "Dude, obviously not a great clip, but like here's the situation, here's what happened, whatever." I thought he would be a gentleman and just like kind of move on but he obviously has leaned into it and i think he's doubled his follower account in the past month or so so good for him there you go um yeah I mean, it turns out you know if you just become like a professional hater like you, you don't actually win anything there's no prize at the end right but um okay anyhow um yeah, I think one thing that kind of blows their minds, one way I, I think about it, and maybe it's a, tr a trivial statement or maybe it's just a cope, but, you know, it's weird that in Web 2, you know, you would find a viral use case and then find some way to pay for it, right? And, you know, that, the, the Leon Shapiro's at the time, and there were many in the early days of Web 2, would, you know, criticize these Web 2 companies that could never manage to turn a profit. I mean, even when I was at Facebook, as late as, like, during, like I was there during the IPO, the ad system was still kind of a wreck and didn't actually monetize very well. And it was only kind of the spur of having to actually report public results that, you know, Facebook kind of pulled its head out of its ass and shipped a lot of the ads products that nowadays have made it what it is today, right? But, you know, Web3 yeah. is different. You, you get liquidity early because the economics kind of come first, and then you build all this infrastructure to then supply all this infrastructure, and the consumer use case comes last. And it's, <laughs> it's, an, it's an odd order of operations. And, of course, there's a weakness to that. I mean, there's a weakness to that in that you have just speculative capital that flows into it. Mind you, in the Web2 case, you also have speculative capital. It's just called VCs. And somehow... Yeah. You know, I mean, Uber still loses money, just to cite an obvious example. It's a public company, thousands of employees, billions in market cap. It loses money every quarter, right? And how, how did this thing get here? <laughs> like, how did it manage to survive however many? I mean, it, it was founded in whatever the, um, I guess, 2010 or 11 or so. Yeah. 2009, yeah, yeah. And so it's managed to survive this long, even though, I mean, it's probably turned a profit at some point in its history, but consistently it's not turning a profit. And again, it's, you know, it's writing off speculative capital from VCs rather than speculative real t retail interest and whatever. Um, so yeah, that, that yeah. conversation is, is an interesting one too. And I think like obviously it sucks when people lose their life savings in Luna or in some of these like very kind of like clear and large Ponzi's. There has been, I think, a little bit of a recasting of the people who've lost money in Web3 is like this group of like grandmas who don't know any better. And like, it, you know, it feels like it, it the, the narrative sounds like the, the people who are take, being taken advantage of by the like early Nigerian print scams when it's a lot of people who kind of knew what they were getting themselves into going for the, like unsustainable yields in a lot of cases and 
uh, and then got wrecked. So I don't know. It's obviously always unfortunate, but it, there has been this recasting of, I think, the type of uh, trader or investor who's getting uh, getting crushed here. Yeah, I mean, also, it's notable the companies that didn't crash, right? I mean, there's a lot of Web3 companies with lots of liquidity that didn't implode, right? Uniswap, Compound, Aave, et cetera. Um, yep. And so... Um, and of course, the the, the repast to all this about Web3 is all a pounzy that it's the most centralized companies that did the worst, right? It was the truly decentralized ones that didn't actually do that poorly in the downturn, um, which I guess is a form of defense in a way. I mean, the way I see it is that yeah. DeFi is just speed running all the same landmines that centralized finance has had or had in the past century or even more recently um, from speculative bubbles to under hedge positions to concentrations of risk. I mean, this is all that I saw front and center in 2008 when I was a junior pricing quant at Goldman Sachs, and you just saw investment banks go after. And the only difference, of course, is that you didn't have a lender of last resort to sort of provide liquidity and sort of pick and choose winners, so other than, I guess, in the crypto case, FBF, who does that, or has tried to do that with a, <laughs> with a few projects. Um, yeah, but arguably, I mean, the yeah. hope is, yeah, the hope is that speed running actually means that you get to a point, uh, you get to the point that we're at today and then past it, and you do all of that much faster. But of course, like if you give people an easy way to just with a, a dial up connection, gamble 24 seven and, and, uh, and, you know, scam people and like, it's the internet and people do weird stuff on the internet all the time. And this has money baked in. So I think obviously a lot of structure is going to need to be built uh, around some of these things so that people don't get uh, wiped out in the same way in the future. But, you know, not like I was saying, saying this at the time, so hindsight's twenty twenty, but in retrospect, it was fairly obvious that we were going to speed run these mistakes. I think part of the reason what probably pisses people off is that Web3 had wrapped itself in so much, you know, possibly well-meaning, but nonetheless kind of woo-woo ideology around yeah. communal this and that. Like, I've never heard VCs sound more like commies than when they're talking <laughs> about DAOs and community and governance. So I was like, motherfucker, did I just walk into the, you know, the Supreme Soviet here? And yet somehow that was like said with a straight face. And though, again, it was underpinned by not much more than just kind of momentum and, and speculative interest. Totally. And it turns out it turns out that uh, large groups of thousands of thousands and thousands of people all having kind of an equal voice in decision making is a really complex and tough way to run an organization. I mean, I was involved in, uh, you know, fairly closely involved in Constitution Dow when we tried to buy the Constitution, raise $47 million for that. And it was so funny seeing the difference between kind of core team of 30 or so people who were building it and just like kind of how on, on the ball they were. It just felt like, you know, a well, a well-oiled startup for a six day period. And then going into the general discord channel there where things were just crazy. People were saying that we should buy and then burn the constitution. Like it, it's very clear that there needs to be some sort of uh, structure. That's not, you know, one person, one vote or token weighted voting or whatever it is. And I think we're speed running governance structures as well here. And we're going to make a lot of the same mistakes that, uh, that people have, you know, fought wars over over the past, you know, thousands and hundreds of years. Uh, and then hopefully, you know, there are also ways to build better internet native governance structures than exist today. I mean, yeah, that's the whole other interesting side of this, right, which is the political side. I mean, you're mentioning Constitution Dow, but <clears throat> I did a story on the whole ENS, uh, yeah. you know, uh, thing and 
you know, you know, it, it felt like it was run like an anarchist book collective in Portland or something. It was just this like completely dysfunctional thing with, you know, sort of an ideology, but then a bunch of people who were obviously kind of mentally ill and kind of like sublimating <laughs> it in the context of the organization. And basically you, you couldn't actually run any sort of coherent organization this way. And then at the end of the day, someone like obviously embedded in all this Dow woo woo is like, oh, this is actually just a company with an owner. And that person just fires people. And that's the end of it. <laughs> Right. Yep. Um, um, so <clears throat> I thought that was kind of interesting. It's I'm, funny. I think like there's going to be, you know, I've written a little bit about what, what I think will happen kind of coming out of whenever this, this bear market ends. And one, I think will be to your point, kind of infrastructure has been built. I think there'll be kind of consumer applications that, that take off. But another is there's just like all this really unsexy stuff that doesn't have to be fully decentralized, but it's just a little bit better and smoother. Like if you look at, you know, stable coins that are actually kind of one-to-one fiat back, like something like a USDC and start playing around with the possibilities there. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of areas where you can just make things faster and smoother than they are today. Or I was talking to a, a guy who's doing a real world asset uh, credit fund on chain and his like life's mission is just to take out the 35 basis points of bloat that you pay to, you know, like the DTC to clear, you know, to issue QSIPs and pay out on, you know, structured finance loans and all of that kind of stuff. So there's these like little areas where things can just get a lot more efficient, where it doesn't need to be fully decentralized, but actually having a credibly neutral kind of blockchain and, and, uh, and protocol that things are built on top of does just make the process smoother and allow different parties who might not trust each other to trust it. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of compromise coming out of this as well. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, and I kind of wish that Web3 people were a little bit more forthright about it, assuming they agree with it, which is that like, at least half, from my conversation, at least half the impetus behind crypto and Web3 is basically just rebuilding some of the same infrastructure, but just like recasting the movie. Like, we just don't want, we're tired of talking about the FANG people and their dominance of everything. And we're just basically in in a somewhat almost cultish way creating an internet infrastructure that's going to make, you know, the Facebooks or the Googles in the world kind of not exist anymore, ideally, right? And yeah. at least to me, that that's part of what's attractive about it. And somehow, you know, and it's it's a deep, I mean, it's not quite nihilism because you're, you're building, but it is kind of a, a deeply revolutionary and anti-institutionalist vibe to it. And, you know, one, one of the sort of axes that I think you can divide the current discourse in, because there's, I mean, there's several, but I think there's a lot of like latent axes where like people are superficially left or right, but really there's something else going on. And one of those things is, are you an institutionalist? Like, do you actually believe that the major institutions of society should continue as they are, maybe under different management, maybe under my management, which is why <laughs> I'm, I'm claiming to be a contrarian online, but really if someone were to appoint me editor-in-chief of the New York Times, I would happily accept the post versus those who are like, no, 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 we, we actually want to burn the New York Times to the ground <laughs> and make it such that that just doesn't even exist as a media model anymore. And, you know, I, I joke tweeted recently that like the one tell that you can really tell between the institutionalists and the anti-institutionalists, because, you know, a lot of these institutionalists, you know, have the trappings of being rebellious, but really aren't, is that they'll always kind of, you know, kowtow to like the elite accolade. Like if they get published in the New York Times, it's a big deal. Or if they actually come up with their countering institution, it looks exactly like the other institution that in theory they're countering, right? And so you, you yeah. can always tell that underneath, like, 
and I'm not, I mean, I could be naming names and people are probably kind of already discerning who I'm referring to here, but like, they're not really trying to create a different world. And I, I think in Web3, one of the interesting things about it is that many of the people are, like, like you said, it's like, yeah, 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 structured CDO finance and Wall Street, like, fuck that, we're going to do it this other way. And maybe it's a naive thought. I, like, I, I don't understand enough about it to even understand whether it's realistic or not. But the underlying drive is clearly to like, no, 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 we're just going to blow out the current way to do things like out of the water, right? Which is, yeah. again, I think well, refreshing. I- I think I think that's refreshing, and I think that's part of it. But I do think there's, you know, obviously this is not. I, I don't love the the web two versus web three thing because I spend ninety five percent of my day happily or or at least like you know addictively using uh, web two products, um, and you know I use a bank account and like all of all of those things, and normally they work pretty well. But I, I think there's like some. The thing that animates me probably in the space is that like it's just a belief that once you get to the point where you've you know rebuilt CDO on the blockchain, like then maybe there's like even further that you can go beyond that and and kind of taking a view that's anti whatever experimentation is going on here, just like you know whole cloth anti it. It's just almost a belief that like this is as good as things are going to get. And like, even despite the fact that, uh, you know, we have the internet and we're all connected and we were all able to like kind of work from home uh, over the course of the pandemic and you can get in touch with anybody in the world, like the institutions are like kind of as good as they're ever going to be. Demo- you know, representative democracy is like the end state of, of governance as we, you know, travel out to the stars and Facebook is like the end state of social media and maybe, you know, it's TikTok and that's, uh, you know, has its, its, all, its, its own host of issues. And I think like if you can just get to a spot where you can at least build back to the same kind of level of infrastructure and then build on top of that, you get to, you know, potentially some really like kind of fascinating things that are enabled by uh, the Internet that, that we have, which, uh, you know, none of the big institutions are really Internet native. Yeah, no, I think that's actually a solid criticism. I mean, like, Web2 boomers are a thing, right? People, and I would absolutely put Zach in this category. By the way, I'm going, I'm going on Logan's podcast, I think, next week to talk to him about oh, this. Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's a guy who had two successful exits. He's this big, fat billionaire who's been well-served by the current system, and, he, and he's just sitting there and saying, I, I don't know, why do you want to change this shit up? And that's basically his response to everything, right? Which, of course, like, I don't know him that well at all, though I know his early history because he and I were in ad tech around the same time, so I'm familiar with his, his early work. I very much doubt that the, you know, whatever, 20-something-year-old Zach that built Invite Media, you know, thought or, or talked that way. In fact, I'm pretty sure they didn't because at the time, programmatic was its own rebellion against the sort of the existing way to buy and sell media on the internet. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely this sort of complacency with the way things are. And like, yeah, I, I don't know. Why, why do you want to just like wreck Wall Street? <laughs> like, why do we want to do this? Um, yeah, and, so, and I don't even, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm like not an anti-institutionalist. I don't hate the way things are, but we've done, you know, like the world has parts of the world have gotten worse and parts of the world have gotten a lot more interesting and, and cool. Like there's a company that I backed that launched today that is this like little thing. They're essentially doing like escrows that you can bet into to say like, uh, Antonio wants to have Pacquiao on, uh, on the show. We're going to crowdfund it on the internet. And like just these like little internet native tools that uh, I think are just going to make that space that we live in more fun. Not to mention like, you know, we spend more time in more immersive worlds online. Like when there's a whole other can of worms, but I just don't know how you'd be against uh, yeah, at least like experimenting and trying to build kind of cooler, cooler things uh, online and hopefully the touch of our world. Right. I mean, it, you know, if you understand technically something like, you know, 
Ethereum or the Ethereum virtual machine, it's hard to not be sort of mind blown by how it works and how it just, it's a completely different way of doing distributed computing, right? And how, yep. how can you look at that and not think, well, dude, I don't know what the fuck this thing's going to eventually do, but it's like too cool to just like not become something, right? Totally. And, I, I mean, I, yeah, I like, I mean, you know, using a Web2 example, the company that I love, like Replit and I think, and Web3 have a very similar kind of ethos where you're just kind of pushing you know, the, the creatorship out to the edges and letting more people create and build things more easily. And like, to Zach's point, maybe that, you know, maybe there aren't going to be, you know, not every company with a token is going to be worth a billion dollars, but there's going to be a lot of just like small, very cool projects built by both people who learn how to code on Replit and people who are tapping into the kind of infrastructure in Web3. And the sooner that we can get, you know, scams uh, out of the way, the better, but yeah, that, that, that kind of like just decentralized creativity, I think, is going to be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, the feeling I get of, of, of a lot of this technology, and, and not to make it sound almost too religious, although there are religious elements to Web3, um, is that it almost feels like a piece of technology from like 20 years in the future that somehow got dropped in our present day, right? Yeah. And, and, but the thing is, if you look at technical history, that's true for a lot of things, right? I mean... The transistor was invented in, I think, 1944, 45, right at the end of World War II, when most things were still driven with vacuum tubes. And it didn't, it wasn't really used for much of anything until the microchip actually got invented in the mid to late 60s, which itself arguably wasn't used for much until the home PC became a thing 20 years later in, in the 80s. And I would argue the computer itself wasn't even that interesting until the internet came around 15 years later. And arguably, you know, network computing wasn't really even that interesting until, you know, the iPhone came around something like 12 or 13 years later. And, you know, and here we are a few years after that. And the reality is that, you know, it, or even, you know, look at barcodes. Barcodes, most people don't realize barcodes, well, there are several embryonic versions of barcodes. The first versions were actually, I don't know if you know the history, was actually to read train cars because cataloging <laughs> train cars and in, in train stations was hard. And so, I mean, there's, there's a few things that people credit as being kind of like barcodes or a QR code, like a scannable thing. But one of the first versions was the idea that you'd paint this complicated logo thing on the side of a train car with an automated reader, and that way you could keep track of where train cars are, right? And it, but it wasn't until like the scan checkout thing came that it actually started getting used, and arguably it wasn't until COVID that QR codes did much of anything either, right? And so yeah. I, know, I know saying too early is always this, and you can say that forever, but it simply is the case that particularly when you have technology that's like, it does this wild, cool thing that seems to have no present use whatsoever, <laughs> Right. The, real, the reality is that history tends to catch up with that at some point. It could be 20 or 30 years and finally say, aha, this is what it's going to be used for. Right. Totally. Um, and our yeah. imaginations, I think, you know, like move faster than the ability to actually build infrastructure and all of that. And so, yeah, of course, we're going to get excited early. I mean, we you talked about the cycle earlier, like you can say that that too early is overused and that this is what happens is overused. But like that Gartner hype cycle or like the Carlotta Perez cycle, like it happens pretty much every single time there's an exciting new technology. And so like the crash is, is fairly predictable. Um, and hopefully it comes out the, the other side. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that's part of it. And the other part, which is not a new thing to say, but I think it's maybe a little underappreciated. is just that like, this is the first kind of big shift to happen when everybody was, on the internet and the first one to, to happen with money baked in and, and for the ability, you know, for anybody to get involved financially. And so I think those two things are just also, you know, if, if microchips were invented somehow, you know, before, uh, after the internet, 
existed and after everybody was spending all of their time on Twitter and people could pour money into microchips, like there'd probably be a pretty similar, uh, you know, overexcitement early on there too. Right. I mean, the reality is that, you know, <laughs> history isn't in fact product managed, right? There, there actually is no human ro roadmap that says, or like in the game of civilization, once you have these cards in which in order to get to like rule of law, you needed to have like three different cards before it. Like history doesn't actually work that way. <laughs> and almost yeah. like a, hack, a hacked game of civilization, some little piece of technology will drop into society that it can't actually use much, right? Because it, it's missing two or three other elements from it. And it'll just sit there and languish until those two or three other elements happen. Again, the microchip example that you cite is very good. Again, it, there, there just weren't PCs, right? <laughs> like think about it, between the 60s and the 80s, there just weren't that many computers around and there just weren't, you know, weren't that many chips being produced. And so a lot of other things had to happen for that to actually come to fruition. Um, so, you know, we're, at, we're halfway through the show. I, there is one thing I want to talk about. I didn't run it past you whether you had tuned into this. It's kind of a recent thing. Uh, so uh, just about this time last week, I interviewed uh, Balaji, who I'm sure you know, and his new book, The, the Network State, which I, I imagine you've heard about and or yeah. maybe read. Yeah. And just so I, I did a podcast, which actually was pretty popular. I, you know, I don't normally uh, clap myself in the back so much, but, you know, Balaji liked it. And then just this morning, Vitalik actually did a review of Balaji's book, which I thought was very interesting and kind of name dropped me and, and referenced the, the podcast. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I, um, one of the, so I think one of the fascinating things about crypto, and I think one of the things I think irritates a lot of people is that in fact, it's not just trying to refactor, oh, like the internet, no, 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 like let's refactor human society and politics, right? And so a, a lot of people in crypto speak as you do, which is, or, you know, when you, or you were sort of quoting the governance challenges behind a DAO, for example, um, and democracy and all the rest of it. And that, you know, Balaji obviously has been a, a major pumper of crypto for a long time. But in his book, I, I, you know, I don't know if you've managed to read it. It's very, it's very Balaji, which is a, a way of saying like it, it's it's very thematic and very strongly stated. And you know, in my opinion, like I think it's a it's an interesting book and worth reading. I wish he had spent more time on the network state concept itself. Um, but the idea here, basically, for those who maybe aren't familiar with it or haven't tuned into the cycle. Um, after you get past the 300 pages of, of Balagiisms, you actually get to the sort of network state itself. And the idea there is that um, it's not a purely virtualized domain, right? Like it's not the metaverse or VR headsets. Like that's not the pitch. The pitch is more like a sort of archipelago of federated states, right, that exists around the world. And that in some sense, he, he, it's almost like this is, an, this is like an old Gen X reference. It's like defragging a disk in like a Windows operating system, right? You've got all these various people in these various settings. And in some sense, you pull them out of their settings in which they're kind of in conflict with their local politics and put them all into one sort of federated state, almost like a, a Hanseatic league from back in the day or something. Um, and part of the reason why it's attractive, and I'm doing a post on it this week myself, is that in some sense, we're kind of already living that way. I, I don't know how, how you live, Packy, but I think a lot of my circle, I've met most of them online. I don't know where half of them actually live anymore. I myself, in my, like you know, globalist cosmopolitan elite mode kind of bounce between like three neighborhoods in San Francisco, four neighborhoods in New York and two neighborhoods in Miami. And that's it. Right. And like if tomorrow we woke up and there was a Balaji stand, right, which is where like this federated network state of the, of the neighborhoods I talked about, to be honest, I wouldn't even fucking notice. Like literally if there was like passport control between that and everything else, at least while I'm in like this mode, I, it wouldn't, I, I wouldn't even know or care. Mind you, I'm speaking right now from rural Nevada, so I'm definitely outside of Balajistan at the moment. But I'm, I think I'm one of these weird people who actually bounces. Between, like, I don't think this is actually fairly normal. Um, so anyway, I'll stop there. But I'm curious if you had thoughts about Balaji's, you know, network state. 
Yes, I haven't I haven't read the whole book. I've heard him talk about it. So I'm going to not have very much nuance here. Other than that, I mean, I, I think I agree that some of this is already happening. Um, I mean, like, I, I think Miami is probably the best example of this where, you know, people in tech teamed up with the mayor and made Miami a place where people moved. It already has kind of, you know, some of the some of the governmental things that uh, people who've made a lot of money in tech want to want to find, which is particularly, you know, no state taxes, for example. Um, and a lot of people ended up moving or spending at least half the year in Miami. And so it's not, you know, the full network state where you're talking about uh, the keto club or, or whatever it is where, you know, you really have to be uh, united around one particular passion, but really like for people that were kind of optimistic about the future building in tech, Miami became that a little bit in a way that was pretty shocking to see how quickly it all came together. So I think that's probably a proto example. I mean, I think the tough part will be getting, uh, you know, getting the land and getting people to kind of pick up and, and move their lives. Although to your point, it can be an archipelago and there can be little places everywhere. Maybe this happens on the earth. I mean, I, I, the weird way that I project this out is you know, when, when humans end up colonizing a bunch of asteroids and Mars and wherever else, like, are we going to run those the same way? Or are people going to have a chance to have all these different kind of like little uh, experiments in in governance and, and self-organization and all of that? And I would imagine that it probably looks a lot more like the network state than, uh, than you know, modern day democracies. Uh, so I don't know where, you know, what happens between Miami 2021 and whenever we colonize the asteroids, but I do think like that's maybe the, the application where it's going to start being maybe the most apparent, maybe easiest to pull off on a, a, a blank easel. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I, it's funny. I'm going to have Dryden Brown of Praxithon, I think, next week. And this is one of these Charter Nation projects. Um and it'll be interesting to get his view on it. I've hung out with some of them when I was in New York uh, at NFT NYC, and it was very interesting. A lot of very smart, motivated people trying to make a thing happen. We'll see if it happens. I think one problem with that, and, and Balaji is the first to admit it, and I think Vitalik gets into it as well in his post, is that, you know, I, you know Balaji, <laughs> as Balaji as he is, right, was, was very self-aware and, and I think thoughtful about his his network stake idea, and he says, like, the moral, the, moral, the moral reason for this has to come first, right? This isn't just some, like, little techno hack. It's not just a little lifestyle choice. There has to be a reason for this to exist in a deep way that matters to most people. Or, as, as I like saying, because it sounds kind of quippy, like, would you die for the Dow? <laughs> like, would you take a bullet for this thing happening? Because for nation states to exist, that, that typically tends to happen. Although Balaji's response is like, well, Singapore was peacefully formed, but... Anyhow, yes, but Israel definitely was not. <laughs> and Ukraine right now is definitely not, right? And yeah. so, you know, nations are typically not born in, in peace and agreeable circumstances. It's usually quite, and nor was this country for that matter. And so, um, that's, I think that's one of the problems, right? And again, Vitalik gets into this in his piece as well, because he's also very self-aware and very thoughtful, which is like, sure, we can produce all this technology and, and, and capital, but it's hard to produce moral capital, right? The feeling that, yeah. yes, this is the correct state of affairs. This is an identity that I belong to and that I'm willing to bet my life, my livelihood, that, that of my children, my wife, my spouse, whatever. It, that's the hard part, right? Um, and without that, it, yeah, it doesn't become much more than, 
you know, I, <laughs> it's funny. I think I proposed this to the practice people. It's like, dude, like all this business of getting land in some foreign country, why don't you just like get a deal from DeSantis in Florida? And the same way that you have like the villages, which for those who aren't from South Florida, the villages is like this quasi city state with a population of like 200,000 people. That's a retirement community, I think outside of West Palm Beach. And you just go in through the walled gates of it. And it, you might as well as be in like the Vatican or San Marino or one of these or you know, Singapore or something. It is its own world with like a quasi government and law enforcement and all the rest of it. Why don't you just do that for millennials, right? It doesn't yeah. have to be, right? But they're like, well, no, because obviously that doesn't fulfill the sort of trappings and aesthetics of an actual nation slash network state, which is true, it doesn't. Um, but it, I don't know. It seems to me that in some way, that would definitely, as a V1, find product market fit. Well, I'm not sure that an updated crypto Israel, for example, would actually, <laughs> would actually be well, that popular. As a V1, I'd like to see a DAO sustain more than like 10% voting over a year. <laughs> that would probably be the V1 that I'd be looking for. And then maybe that's a V2. And then uh, Crypto Israel could be V3. <laughs> Yeah, no, but it, but it's funny because like you know, Balaji insists like no, 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 this is not some virtual thing. This is not VR headsets. This is not just some little, or it's not even just a DAO. It's like no, no, we want we want UN representation. We want, in some sense, the, the trappings of a traditional nation state, just along organized along very different lines. And it's just like how how do you get to that? It's just it's and it's funny. I I I know I I often strike the same tune, but we seem so starved of spiritual and moral meaning. Recently, I don't, do you know Anna Gott from, from Twitter? Yeah, of course. Back, yeah, 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 yeah. So she's very well-known, prominent sort of organizer. She has this thing called Interintellect, for those who aren't familiar with it. And it's kind of a, what would you call it, Packy? Kind of a social club type, intellectual society type thing, I guess? Yeah, that, intellectual society sounds right. It's structured around kind of these series of salons that people in the community host on different topics. So it, yeah, intellectual society on the internet with kind of in-person meetups sounds right. Right. And it's, so I went, I was invited to one of her dinners recently in San Francisco with Salma Borja and a few other people. And, you know, it was very nice and pleasant, but it reminded me <laughs> once again, it's like, oh, this is like, this is like a synagogue, but without the Judaism, right? Cause like in a synagogue, for those who aren't familiar, it's, it's less, it's not like a church where you just, I mean, you can do that too, but <clears throat> typically you join it like a social club, right? And your family joins. And then suddenly you've got weekly dinners and whatnot, and it becomes part of your social fabric and you have a common values, which obviously organized around whatever strain of Judaism you're practicing. But it was this, a similar feeling of, <clears throat> oh, this is like community layered with religion on top of it. And that's what keeps it going. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's strange that we're so starved for that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, so before, before I had Not Boring as a newsletter, the original idea after I left the last company of that, which did kind of like a more distributed WeWork, I was like, you know what, I'm going to start something else in the physical world space. And what I want to start is the social club called Not Boring Club that is kind of like if you took, it, it's almost, it's a little inter, inter, intellecty. But take college extracurriculars, put that in like a Soho club, a Soho house type environment, uh, and just like have it be this place where you get that kind of sense of community and belonging, and uh, kind of like you know mental activation and all of that kind of stuff that you get in college and then you lose afterwards. So whether it's spirituality, whether it's that like experience of just all being in something together that's not a company, like I think that's something that you know resonates with or draws people at different points in their lives. So, like pretty often, I'm very glad that I'm not running an in person thing. I think it'd be exhausting. Um, and trying to keep that community together would be really, really exhausting. But I certainly understand the the need and the desire for something like that. Yeah, you know, if we were doing this the old school way, you know what would happen? <clears throat> 
Bollinger and Vitalik would be like these hard-ass gurus. It would be like Jonestown-type stuff, and they would just <clears throat> they would nucleate an actual real-world cult around themselves, and then you know buy a piece of land and just do it that way. But I, I don't think either either of them. I don't know Vitalik at all, but I know Bollinger. Either of them are egotistical enough to do that. Probably a good thing, by the way. Probably a good thing. Well, it's funny too. Like the other the other version of this that I feel like everybody's friends always you know every couple of years come up with is like we should buy a compound somewhere. And we should get <laughs> 10 houses on one property and then we'd see each other more often. There's like all these very real human needs. This is like an extreme, the network state is an extreme example of that where people are like, well, that sucks. Like now I live in an apartment. I don't see the people that I used to hang out with all of the time. Like what if I lived in a place with people who all, you know, felt the same way that I did about things. And, uh, you know, it's kind of this like just never ending, uh, never ending hangout. So I, I certainly, again, get that get that need we'll see uh i mean like i'm i'm uh, definitely not smart enough to bet against biology so you know we'll, we'll see maybe things get weirder and and this happens sooner than than later i think there will be versions of this in the future but yeah it's hard to imagine people dying for a dow at this point well uh, dude pecky as you know the three most the three scariest words in the english language are still Balaji was right. Yep. <laughs> so he, he's been right about a lot of things. Uh, so he might, he might yet be right about this one. But you know, you know, the, you're, yeah, right. The community thing, it's funny. Like everyone has that dream. And by the way, as someone who's actually bought land and made a compound out of it, it's a fucking pain in the ass. And I doubt most people are actually willing to do it. But leaving that aside, um, yeah, I mean, the troll would be like, oh, you've, you've reinvented a neighborhood in which you know your neighbors. <laughs> but totally. it's like, but, but it's true. Like, and we don't have those neighborhoods anymore. Right. We don't have to, well, it, it's that, but it's also you choose your neighbors. Uh, and right. you know, maybe there's something to be said for, for making friends with, with new neighbors, but it's like uh, reinventing a neighborhood where there's full vacancy all at the same time that all of your friends are looking for a place to live and want to be in the same city. So it's, a, it's like one level above reinventing a neighborhood, but yes. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, and maybe this will get me canceled, but whatever. Like, I'm on my eighth cancellation at this point. So, you know, it, it's funny that a lot of this. This trying to create community, the, the, the cynical, the cynics way of saying that is like, oh, so you're basically opposing diversity of thought and opinion, which you kind of are, right? And it's, it's, it's heretical to say that in our current society because like diversity has to be the utmost good. But, you know, I think often, and, you know, I, I, despite everyone being fashionably post-liberal, I still think liberalism is a good thing and that most of these post-liberals are just LARPers all living inside liberalism. Um, but I, I do think that we often, we often understate, like diversity isn't cost-free, right? Like it's obviously easier to get along and like, collaborate to do a common thing with people who like speak your language and, and have your basic assumptions about the world. If, and if you disagree with me, I invite you to parachute yourself into like a random place on the map and like try to fix a spare tire on a car and see how long it takes you versus like the guy sitting next to you at work. Uh, I'm going to bet it's going to be faster with the guy sitting next to you at work. Right. Um, yeah. And it's, and so, and it's, it, and again, it's, again, it's almost quasi heretical to say it, but a true liberal, like small L liberal, like, you know, classical liberal would say, well, the liberal state encompasses various sub-organizations, right? The, the little platoons of, of Burkean thought where, you know, the, you, you play by the rules in the bigger scheme of things. But yes, you create a certain common cause and community with a smaller set of people who maybe don't share the sort of supergroup's values. But whatever, you, you can find some sense of belonging there without having to, like, turn all of society to, like, meet your needs. And somehow we don't, we don't seem to do that anymore. Well, I, I, I mean, I think this is maybe this is a point in Balaji's 
favor with, with the network state a little bit where it's it's just a lot easier to do that in the you know kind of comfort and privacy of a non internet connected world where you are in a neighborhood with uh, a bunch of your you know people who become your friends because they live in the neighborhood and now everybody's just way more exposed to each other um and so maybe that does require a different form of, of organization at some point but um I, I don't know what the right answer is but that that's just what came to mind when when you brought that up i mean i think part of it and i've said this again and again so like the listeners might be tired of me, hearing me say it but i think one of the biggest like kicks in the ass we've gotten as a species is this business of decoupling how information flows from how things move around the world, right? Like we're probably roughly both old enough to remember when like people would send letters and stuff. And like that was, that was the fastest way that most information moves, right? At least over long distances. And now we're in a world in which obviously it's, there's nothing like that. And we refract our entire realities with these black mirrors in our pockets. And, so what, and what that ends up meaning, right, is that again, getting back to the network state idea, the person who literally is living next to you in the same colored square on the map called San Francisco, California, United States of America, planet Earth, whatever, might think and believe and see the world very, very, very differently than you do. Well, in the past, it'd be difficult for that to happen, right? Because, I mean, sure, yeah. city, cities had more than one newspaper. And, and, you know, there's been democracy and, and bipartisan sort of bitterness in the past. But we've gotten to a point in which you can sort of completely divorce yourself from the sort of political and social reality around you. And you see it in a lot of these cities, right? Like, dude, not to, to be yet somebody else saying that SF is dead, but you walk around San Francisco and there's parts of it that are obviously pretty severely economically blighted. And yet you also have new exciting things going on. You've got this like cruise self-driving vehicle, which is a super expensive experiment, like zipping by. <laughs> and it's amazing that it's just odd that you have like cutting edge technology in like in a city that's obviously having some governance issues. And like yeah. that just, that just exists. Well, historically in the past, you know, if you were producing the world's best, whatever, like the cutting edge technology at the time, you, you didn't also have like city government that didn't work, right? Like somehow those two things were correlated and you didn't have one without the other. Um, so it, yeah, it, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, New York is not not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. There's issues, there's been like stabbings on the subways and all of that recently. But I do think there's something to the fact that it's been just more diverse, uh, just like every axis for a very, very long time um, that makes it a little bit more resilient and a little, you know, like there's there's less kind of one side versus the other as, as it seems like there might be in, in San Francisco. Like even looking at it during COVID, like it was a fairly easy prediction early on to say that like if there's a monoculture in San Francisco and, and New York has a bit more of a permaculture, like that is just a lot more resilient of of a structure. And so like maybe maybe the world gets to New York's point once we're more used to all living with each other for a long time. And like New York has you know, other things that I think unite people in the, you know, the pride of being a New Yorker or whatever else. And you'll need to find new versions of those things, but maybe there's just a little bit of how much experience have you had living in a situation where people do different things and think different things and look different ways and, and all of that. Yeah. I mean, New York is just this massive shelling point for lots of different peoples and communities and industries. And so it's hard to Take that as an example for almost anything else in the U.S. because there's almost no city in the U.S. like New York, right? Um, True. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. Like going to, I don't go to California often, but what I do, like the last time I went before COVID, went to L.A. for a little bit, and you sit down at a table and like you hear everybody around you talking about the entertainment industry, like 
people are talking about scripts. It's just like a, a cliche. And then you go to San Francisco and like everybody around you is talking about tech. And I like that you can walk into different places in New York and people are just talking about a bunch of different stuff and you can't predict what people are going to be talking about. Yeah, it, it's a true, you know, metropole to use it for, like it's a true kind of universal metropolis in one place in a way that um, I think LA and SF kind of aren't. Um, yeah. Even though I'm not like this, you know, self-loving New Yorker who, you know, thinks that only my city has bodegas, which by the way, it's not true. There are bodegas <laughs> in more places than New York. Just to dip into bodega discourse for just one second. Um, Bring they were back in... that bodega startup. <laughs> oh God, I remember that. I can't even imagine that launching now. Like it was already kind of thermonuclear at the time. Right now it would just be like, it would be national news on Twitter for like at least two days. Yeah. Um, for those that don't remember this bodega thing, because of course it was in the ancient history of like three or four years ago or whatever it was, maybe more, five years. Um, it, it was just, and, and we already have bodegas, but like I've seen them in a lot of like high rise apartment buildings in San Francisco. It's basically like, imagine like the last minute stuff you buy from a bodega, whether it be toothpaste or like snacks or something, you put it in a machine in the lobby of the apartment. That's it. So that you don't have to walk down the block. It's like in the lobby. That That's the startup. That's the pitch. <laughs> and I mean, it's, um, it's go puff yeah. and you know, the rest. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And, um, Anyhow, a couple of, I think there were white, probably they had to be white bros started this bodega thing. And it wasn't even the concept. It was using the name bodega. That was the problem. apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, that was a vicious cycle for a couple of days there. Typically how, how I, how I managed to like weasel out of getting canceled here, Packy, is usually taking the high road of cultural elitism, um, mixed with a little bit of my Latinx shield and mentioning that bodegas were actually invented in the Caribbean in countries like Cuba and Dominican Republic. And in Spanish, the word, what it actually means is the hold on a ship. It's the lowest part of a ship or it's where wines are stored. And for some, and that's, that's like the textbook Spanish definition. For some reason huh. in the Caribbean, and I've never, I've looked into the etymology. I've never found a hard answer. For some reason, in countries like Cuba, which were trading in port towns, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if nautical terminology kind of leached into everyday speech, which is how the hold of the ship came to mean like the everyday store where you buy random stuff. But Cuba used to have bodegas in every corner. It does it now because of communism. Um, and then, you know, because a lot, a lot of you know Puerto Ricans and Dominicans and Cubans ran the original what are now bodegas in New York. That kind of became the name, and it's this odd kind of shibboleth for like New Yorkers to take pride in their bodega somehow. It's just, it's very strange to me um, because to me, of course, it doesn't have quite the cultural exoticism that it does to like non-Hispanics. It's just like, oh, you mean like the corner little store where you buy like chewing gum or something? But anyhow. Um, I think there's, I think it's part of like a broader, uh, like I grew up outside Philadelphia, which is, you know, it's a city also, but I go home and it's like, you know, 11 PM and you can't get anything. You can't even like order pizza. And so I think there's something, I think like the, the mystique around it is the fact that at any time of day, you can get pretty much anything you want just by walking to the corner. So I don't know if it's the bodega itself, but the fact that the bodega is always open and you can always get what you want. Right. Because the big lie here is that, in fact, let, let, let me cancel myself with the New Yorkers. New York is not, in fact, a 24-hour city. Um, like, you can't actually get dinner at 3 a.m. if you try. Or you can, but your, your selections are going to be very, very few. Um, but the bodegas are open 24-7. And so, yes, you can go there. Um, I won't even start in the bagel discourse because that'll really get me. That'll really get me canceled, Pecky. Um, that, that, <laughs> I used that's to work at a Montreal-based company. That was our big. That was our big oh, yes. Yes. 
those bagels are trash. They're thin. <laughs> oh man, now the Canadians have canceled me. All right. <laughs> they don't. They don't make salt bagels, which I, I might get canceled for saying salt bagels are my favorite, but I love a salt bagel. And they don't make them up there. So yeah, New York bagels, at least versus Montreal, are the clear winner. So I don't do this often because you know I don't like taking sides in the culture war, and of course bagels are part of the part of the culture war. Um, and but occasionally I will t- tickle the tail of the dragon and float my SF versus New York bagel theory. And whenever I do that, there's always some Canadian Montreal guy who shows up and says, actually, no, Montreal. There's like, just like, 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 like literally like clockwork. Some dudes. Yep. And, and, and you're here to tell us, no, it's all, it's all a grift. They're Montreal bagels suck. I've had a lot of Montreal, but they're, they're just different. They're not bagels. They're, they're something different. Uh, and, and it's a fun cultural experience to go to Montreal and have one, but it is not on the same planet. Man. Okay. We're coming to the top of the hour, um, Packy. You know, sh- should, we, should we go there? Sh- should we float my SF bagel theory and see if you agree, given that you are a New Yorker? You've tried the trifecta, I assume, of SF, Montreal, and New York bagels? I've had an SF. I, I, I wouldn't say that I've... I mean, like the SF bagel that I had was very mid. I've not spent a ton of time eating SF bagels, but uh, float it and let's, let's see. Okay. So here's my theory. If you're talking about Mac, if you're taking the max function over the city bagel-wise, New York wins, right? And, and, and by bagel, whether you mean the bagel itself or whether you mean the fillings. So, for example, Russ and Daughters, that I, which is a famous yep. Jewish delicatessen, I used to live two blocks from it, and I used to go there on weekends. And the, the bagels are good, but what's really, like, superlative is what's in the middle of it because they have got, like, four types of locks, and it's just amazing, right? There's a level of care that you just couldn't get in San Francisco. So the, the max is clear that, San Fr- that, sorry, that New York wins. However, here's the problem, right? The and this is the little dirty secret that New Yorkers won't reveal to non-New Yorkers. The average, and by average I mean like volume-weighted by sales New York bagel, <laughs> is actually fairly unimpressive. And if you go to those little aluminum boxes on 6th Avenue or whatever the fuck, the, the bagels are total fucking garbage. And I know this oh, for yeah. sure because I used to eat one of these every day when I'd get on the fucking orange line to go from the Lower East Side to Battery Park to go to my little Wall Street job, and I'd eat one of these fucking things every morning, and they were horrible. But they were yep. cheap and fast and on the way and so whatever and guess what most of the bagels sold in new york are not from russ and daughters or essa bagel or any of the three or four like super high-end bagel places it's that little aluminum box right and so on a volume weighted basis like average bagel new york actually doesn't score that high let's flip it to san francisco so in san francisco for obvious cultural reasons bagels are not like synonymous with breakfast you, you can't find a bagel in like literally every cafe you go to if there is a bagel Often it is in a place that specializes in bagels. And thus, the bagel experience is often superior. So when I started my first startup, which was in Soma back when it was like hot in 2010, it was in this big building. You've probably walked past it on towns between second and third. There's a bunch of co-workings and startups in there. A bunch of companies get out of there. Angel List, Get Around, etc. On the first floor, what did you have? The Bagel Bakery, which would actually make their own bagels and would be like, and so my bagel experience actually went up when I moved from New York to San Francisco, believe it or not, which is something New Yorkers will never believe. And again, it's conditioned on average bagel and on the fact that the Bayesian bagel prior in San Francisco is somewhat higher because there's just fewer bagels. It, it is the case that I think average S of bagels for many people would be higher than average New York bagel. That's my theory. Oh, wow. That is, that's a math, a mathy math. I'll throw, <laughs> I'll throw one wrench in that, which is that most of the, I would say the majority of the quote unquote bagels that people get from the silver boxes are actually on a roll. So like, you know, when I would go to my finance job at, by Brian Park, 
I'd go out to a card every day and get a bacon, egg, and cheese on a roll. I don't, I don't know if I've ever had a cart bagel. You do the roll on the cart, and then you do the bagel in a place like nowhere, nowhere fancy. I'm not even you know fancy enough to be a Russ and Daughters guy, but like I worked across the street from a pick a bagel, great bagel. I live by a bagel pub now, fantastic bagel. So I think if a place, if you're looking at the average of places that specialize in bagels, I still think New York has it. So you had the same experience I had. Well, I, you know, I have to go back and do more. I was in New York a couple of weeks ago. I decided not to test my theory again. Um, but okay, I mean, you're right that a lot of those. Well, the ones that I remember that I used to get, yeah, they were basically rolls. They weren't bagels. They weren't boiled. They were not, in fact, bagels. But you could see the little indentation in the middle as if they were trying to be bagels. They were like, they were like LARPing as bagels. And they were terrible, and they were soggy, and they were just not crunchy at all. It was just horrible. Yeah, but you can in, throw those out of the analysis. Right. Those are, those are fake bagels. Um, those are fake bagels. Oh, okay. Well, now we're manipulating the data set, Packy. I, I see how it is. I see how New Yorkers get about the, the bagel discourse. Um, Cool. Okay. Um, you know, often given your brand, um, maybe we should have some um, callers come up. How do you feel about taking questions? Let's do it. Um, it's funny, like you can't predict, you'd think like controversial guests would spur like a bunch of guests to come up and ask, but it, it, that doesn't necessarily happen. So if anyone wants to raise their hand and ask a question, I'm not sure to a listener where it is, but somewhere probably on the lower right, there's a raise your hand button somewhere. So if you want to ask... Uh, Pack your me a, a question. No questions? <clears throat> Nothing about Web3 or crypto. I can't believe it. This is actually pretty good as a live audience, by the way. Um, so, you know, you know, you know, like real-time social is kind of interesting because you've got people in the audience. But then this gets streamed out to like conventional podcasting. So you get the kind of the, the best of both worlds. Um, nobody wants to ask a question. You know, this should be like fucking third grade, where if nobody actually answers a question, I actually just like call pick somebody, somebody from the <laughs> exactly. I just, I sorry, just call them up. And if you if you don't have a good answer, then you, you just get a lower grade. That that might be a little bit too cruel. People might start like bailing or report me to call in or something. <laughs> Who do I know? You, that. you know what? I'm I'm gonna fucking pull Sean up here. Oh, oh look, and it says invite to speak. I actually can't pull you up. Let's see if Sean is paying attention. I invited him to speak. He might. Oh. He accepted. Sean, I've just, you're an ad tech OG. I mean, it's, I just decided to yank you up here. Sean, the mute button's on the lower right. Yeah, I'm paying attention. Uh, I'm loud and clear, but um, I'm just a lurker. You're just a lurker. <laughs> you, come, you, you come to almost all my shows, which is very flattering, I've noticed. Um, yeah, they're, they're always informative, highly entertaining. And let me get in a plug. Everybody needs to buy Antonio's book, Chaos Monkeys. Oh, <laughs> now they're going to claim that I, I paid you to show that. Um, it's funny how much staying power that fucking book has had, by the way. In fact, arguably, it's had too much staying power for my tastes, to be honest. I wish I could often just sort of delete it from collective memory. But no, no. That's a, I, just today, I reached out um, to two YC founders who are like, much younger than me. <laughs> They're like YC 22 or something. They were presumably in diapers when I last did YC. I emailed them out of the blue asking about their product because it's a crypto product. Um, and they're like, oh, yeah, man, we love Chaos Mugs. Yeah, what do you need? I'm like, fuck, that's amazing. <laughs> this book so just will never... Only net positive. Nothing bad has ever come of your <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, total positive. There's no negative externalities whatsoever. <laughs> yep. Um, maybe there's a question for you though is is are you seeing any similarities between these cycles in web three that you did in as documented in chaos monkeys oh yeah 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 definitely i mean um 
I mean, I think this is a little bit what Packy gets into in his most recent post, although there's a whole like formal economic framework that he's referring to. But there, there's definitely, and it, you know, human memory is selective. So how, who knows how much I'm biasing, biasing, biasing it myself. But a lot of like the web two hate of like, oh, what the fuck is this going to do? This isn't that interesting. Oh, what do you, like how is XYZ way of doing it online better than like ABC way of doing it in person, like all that weird hate and just kind of like boomerism. And by boomerism, obviously, I don't mean the generation. I just mean this kind of like complacent old man yells at cloud. Oh, I don't like this new way of doing it. Like that was totally around Web2. Like we're forgetting it now, but like Uber got endless shit for like, oh, well, what do you mean a taxi? And like, why would you start with a black car? Like I remember I heard the Uber pitch early on. I'm like, huh, that sounds kind of dumb, <laughs> which obviously it wasn't. But like there was so much hate directed at all these companies that we just take for granted now. And the reality is that, you know, we don't, <laughs> we just get used to weirdnesses, right? We don't like actually get smarter about the world. And so, um, it's, but it's funny. It's funny too. Yeah. I, I, when I was writing a piece recently, I went back and looked at all the comments that people made when uh, Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars. Instagram had a bunch of users, pretty easy, like, you know, early days of Instagram. I remember people thinking like, oh, cool, you can put filters on your photograph. Like, this is kind of useless. And then it got bought for a billion dollars. And the comments were like, this just shows that Zuckerberg is a kid who doesn't know what he's doing. And, blah, blah, blah. and it was like pretty consistent. Like, sometimes they'd be like, no, I love Instagram app. Don't see how this makes any sense. They don't make any money. And Instagram is is probably the best acquisition, you know, at least in recent history of tech. It's a, it's like very hard, I think, for people to to extrapolate out into exactly what's going to happen at the time of things. Yeah, and the the only other competing acquisition I would say is the other one they made, which is WhatsApp, <laughs> which cost them a bit more. But I remember at the time I made a joke. I was at Facebook when the Instagram acquisition happened, and it basically happened over a weekend, like. Drama happened, and then Monday, Zuck sent out like a two-hour email saying, yeah, so we bought Instagram. <laughs> and it's like, okay, the fuck was that about? And then WhatsApp happened, I think, after I left. But in both cases, like if you divided the acquisition price by the number of engineers, it was like an insane price. Yeah. It, was like a, it was like $100 million per head. <laughs> and Well, I mean, what, yeah. WhatsApp was, what, $19 billion or something? Yeah. And they had maybe fewer than 19 engineers. That, that was crazy. Yeah, they had, I actually, I did the math. I've deleted my tweets since then, but I think a joke tweet I had at the time was that the math worked out to 250 million per WhatsApp engineer and quote unquote, only $80 million per Instagram engineer. And I think my, my joke Facebook post is like, each of those $80 million Instagram engineers is looking at those $280 million WhatsApp engineers and saying, those motherfuckers aren't worth it. (laughs) (laughs) You (laughs) You can just imagine. And of course, in retrospect, like... Instagram and WhatsApp have absolutely saved Facebook since Facebook.com uses actually declining or plateaued. Well, I had to log in for yeah. something today uh, for the first time, and I, my account got banned in, in May, which I didn't realize until today. Yeah, I had that experience recently because, you know, Facebook has these kind of dark pattern logins for Messenger. So I had to log into Messenger to get some message, and it actually logged me into Facebook. And so I, I went to the feed. And it's like your whole set of friends that you knew 10 years ago, frozen in time. We're not frozen in time, like they've done things, but it's that set of people. The UI feels very dated. Like it's like, wow, what a bizarre time warp. And then I deactivated my account instantly because I didn't want to see it at all. It it really is the greatest example of like multivariate testing gone wrong, right? Like just optimization as opposed to having some vision for the product gone, gone wrong. 
Yeah, and you know, not to toot my own horn, I kind of warned about this at the end of Chaos Monkeys that it was very alarming that Facebook hadn't actually shipped a viral new product that it had only copied or bought one, right? Yeah. And that, that, that was obvious in like 2016 and it's even more true now, which is a shame because I still have a lot of sort of tenderness for the company and I think they did a lot of things very right. But, um, and it's weird because Facebook was very, was very conscious of big company suck seeping into the company. And so they would take steps against it in various ways. But I, I think it's, such as the way of all flesh, so to speak, or such as the way of all corporations, they eventually um, they eventually go that way. This is why we need DAOs. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes the Web three pumper. Web three solves this. Web three absolutely three, solves this. For sure. Web three yeah, solves this. Facebook Facebook run as a DAO would be uh, would be interesting for sure. Yeah, I don't think Zuck would be appreciate that too much. <laughs> he doesn't no. seem doesn't seem like the DAO governance vote sort of guy. <laughs> no. Um, Cool. Okay. Well, so we're past our time. Uh, thanks, Sean, for being yanked in and not objecting to me yanking you in. Thank you, Packy. We've had a fascinating conversation. I'm glad we got to jam. Um, despite doing zero prep for it, it seems like uh, it went off pretty okay. And we um, yeah, we did it. And um, yeah, next week, just as a teaser, I think I have Dryden Brown of Praxis, which is a fascinating sort of charter nation project. Um, and he's going to talk to us about that. And um, yeah, this episode will go out soon enough, Packy, and so it'll be available where all fine podcasts are downloaded soon enough. Um, thanks again, and uh, see everybody next week. Bye. Thanks for having me. See you, Packy.